Just to quickly introduce Franchise, you know, Franchise is a publication focused on the intersection of basketball and contemporary culture. Um, we're heavily visual, really kind of focused on curating everything, you know, the basketball influences from fine art, music, you know, fashion, this intersection where we're sort of at the, um, on a Venn diagram, we're purely on this, on the intersections of it. And uh, we started about a year ago now, um, two issues out, a third one getting ready to come out, which we're really excited about. I know it's, it's kind of uh, tough, you know, as an indie publication to keep going. And, uh, you know, this is purely a passion project and we're lucky enough to be in a situation where we're able to keep putting these out and, and hopefully be able to expand on it. When franchise, when we were first developing, you know, uh, just really trying to get the first issue out and figure out what it even is, I was ending my tenure at, at my startup that, that I had founded and run for eight years, which was, you know, it's a mobile app software company. And, you know, I'd spent all that time doing software development. And so to do a print publication was sort of a therapy project for me. It was, let's do something that is purely about the passion and have it be physical and have it be something we just want to exist in the world. So for us, you know, that, that was first and foremost, priority one was to, to make sure that, you know, that passion showed and, you know, kind of go, going at it with no expectation. We were just like, we feel like there's a need for this to exist and let's make it happen. And so, yeah, from, from the beginning, it was sort of, um, I treated it as a therapy project. It was, it was just, I really, really, it was for the love. So right now, um, kind of the core team is based in uh, the Bay Area in California, and I'm in L.A. So we're, we're definitely a West Coast publication, and then we have a couple members of our team in New York, and, you know, we're adding people as we go internationally. Um, so we do have kind of a West Coast, East Coast uh, um, vibe, but this the publication was founded in California. Um, so right now w- with us, um, myself, I'm Brock Batten, and we have Chris Dia, who's our art director, Justin Montag, the editor-in-chief, and then uh, Kasha, who is... Kasha, I always butcher your last name. <laughs> Palaska. Uh, who's our editor. So we have a really, I love our team right now. Everybody brings sort of a different thing. Everybody kind of comes with a different background. But what unifies us is this passion for basketball that's, you know, been a part of us all since childhood. I think our core team feels like it's about eight people. Um, there's sort of, I, there's sort of rings, you know, there's kind of like this inner core team and, you know, the four of us, Chris, Justin, Kasha, that were down in New Orleans for All-Star Game sort of represent that. But there's sort of immediately, you know, um, a group of designers and, and other writers and people like Vic that are doing Twitter. And so really, I think it's about eight people that are actively contributing. And, um, and then, you know, then it expands on from there, people that are, that we can just count on for special projects. And those, those people are all over the world. Hey, so I'm Kasha, and I'm an editor at Franchise, and um, 
Well, I was actually born in Poland and I lived there until I was seven. Um, and then when I moved to the States, I was a gymnast, but I lived in Southern California. Um, I lived in Orange County, which is a very boring place. Um, and I'm an only child and my, my dad was always super active and he was into basketball. And so that was kind of a thing that we did. We watched Laker games together and um, it was like a exciting time in the Lakers, um, because, um, Del Harris was coaching and Kobe, like, it was like, you know, this was after like magic. Um, this is like Kobe was, it was like his first year. Um, you know, this was like Kobe when he was still number eight and, you know, so it was Kobe and Shaq and it was Nick Van Exel who is like, this amazing ball handler. Like sometimes like I'm still at work and I'll just like be like Nick Van Exel highlight reel. Um, but yeah, so we'd watch and we're like, Oh, this guy's going to be good. And, um, I just always thought it was such a cool sport because like baseball, you know, like American baseball, it's like a grim slog. Um, it's like never ending, but basketball is exciting. And, um, there's things happening and like the team was just getting better. And then, you know, then there was like the three P and we'd go to games and like, yeah, I was, I was just hooked. For myself and Justin, uh, who's our editor in chief, we both grew up in Kansas, which it's kind of a funny place to grow up or where basketball was an absolute obsession, uh, particularly college basketball. And, you know, the founder, the inventor of the game, Dr. James Naismith, was the first coach at the University of Kansas, you know, where we both ended up going to, going to uni. And so it's just, it's part of our culture is, you know, my dad, who went from an early age, my dad had us with a basketball in our hands, you know, even in the cold winters, I'd be in the garage practicing dribbling and ball handling skills and, you know, from as far as I can remember. So it's just kind of been a part of our life and a part of just growing up where we grew up. You know, and we also grew up at a time when, you know, in the late 80s and 90s when Michael Jordan was coming up. So, you know, when you look back at, you know, why this sport is so influential, you know, how did it get, how did sneaker culture develop and all this, you know, you have to point at Michael Jordan in the Air Jordan and, you know, Chicago was the closest team to us. So my dad would take me, you know, a couple times to, to fly to Chicago and go see a Chicago Bulls game and go see Michael Jordan. And, you know, that, that was an obsession for me. I would just come home after school I had a basketball goal you could lower down a little bit and just dunk in my driveway for hours until my hands and wrists were bleeding and go inside and watch Michael Jordan highlights on VHS. You know, so that was just an absolute part of, you know, our life. And, you know, and then I also, you know, at the same time was an artist and, you know, of course, like making art influenced by you know, sports and basketball as a kid, you know, and then, and then I played, I played all through high school and I had one basketball scholarship to a college, a small college. And I took it just because I knew I would probably not make it, you know, much further than that. But I took it just because I felt like, 
you know, I had to prove that I could play the next level. And, you know, I did that for a year and then, you know, took off and moved to Italy to go to art school after, immediately after that and kind of shed, you know, playing in, in the game and kind of shed it completely all of a sudden. Um, but it's always come back around, you know, I've, I've done, as I've moved on in my career and, you know, uh, um, my previous company was a, was a mobile lab company and, you know, I found ways to work with a lot of sports teams and, you know, I developed apps for a lot of NBA basketball teams. And so there's a number of ways it's come back around to sort of have a foot in the door and be able to work with the sport in other ways besides playing the game. So it's always been a passion. Mundial started during the 2014 World Cup. We kind of were all working in various different parts of media and football writing and things like that. Um, we started it because we wanted to write about football in a way that showed out a lot of love. There was a lot of negative things that were surrounding the sport at the time. Um, tabloid newspapers kind of berating it, um, bringing it down. And we wanted to kind of turn the clock back and look at the things that we loved about it because we all play it, we all are fascinated by it, we all watch our team every weekend and it's all we talk about. So we wanted to talk very positively about it. And I think that's where it came from. Uh, two and a half years later, it's a quarterly magazine that focuses on all the same things, perhaps in more detail than we did initially, perhaps um, in a slightly more commercial sense every now and again, but it's still in essence what it was back in 2014. Uh, yeah, I remember when I uh, first picked it up and Dan gave me a copy. I think you came, to, I think what really gravitated me towards it is I was working on a website where it was pretty much the complete opposite end of uh, football writing at the time. So I was, I was lost in sort of uh, transfer news and sort of rumor and all these things that I just really wasn't interested in. It wasn't why I got into writing about football. It's not why I wanted to read. Um, and then as soon as it came along, I was like, fuck, that's, that's what I want to be doing. So I was kind of like chipping away at Dan, like, Oh, I'll write for the next one. I'll write for the next one. And, uh, then eventually, uh, there came a point when Dan asked myself and Owen to come onto the editorial team. And, um, because Dan was fucking off to Hong Kong uh, to to do fancy fashion things, and uh, I think I think ever, ever since then, um, I think that the magazine's grown and grown. Not because we're so great, but it's just because it was just two more people that came on and really, really loved sport and really loved the the culture and the sort of the passion behind not even supporting, but also sort of like retelling the story of supporting. Which was something that, which was something that really came across, um, in the first magazine. Um, I, I know that like quite a lot of football magazines almost read like the people who are creating it, um, are almost like a little bit bored with their own, with like with their own sport. Whereas this really came from a place of like love and sort of like interest and just sort of like energy. And I felt very energized by that. Even when I wasn't involved in it, I was like, I want to do something like that. I can do that. So when it finally came time to get involved with it myself, 
um, I think it just it just like powered on so much more because it had two more people that were completely on the same same wavelength, and luckily we found an audience that were also on that wavelength as well. It's it's kind of very important on a personal level to everyone who works on Mondial that we're we're rooted in print because we've kind of each of us have been burned by that um, digital age of football writing. Um, the sensationalized sports story or the, the boiling down a romantic, um, amazing match to a set of stats um, and writing something just to get people to click on it rather than getting them to enjoy um, enjoy your writing or to, to tell a story. So that that's where our approach comes from um, and that lends itself to, to being quarterly and to not just churning out news for the sake of it for them. Um, taking time with our stories and building them from square one and um, making sure we're happy with them before we give them to our readers, which is maybe maybe a little bit of an old-fashioned approach. Um, it's kind of pre-80s, at least. It's, it's how sports writing used to be done in, in terms of giving it a lot of colour, um, telling a story around the, uh, the things that are happening on the pitch rather than just or the court or whatever it is. We, telling stories about people and um, whether that's players or fans leading from there rather than um, like I said boiling it down to a set of numbers I guess we're kind of unique in the way that we approach digital uh, because like a few of us we've, we've worked between us worked for like some of the biggest online publications in the world so it's it's it's, it's something where we've taken what we've learned there and then sort of like been in a lucky position where where we're moving into sort of indie print where you can really put your own voice across without like having to worry about appealing to sort of like this base demographic or lowest common denominator and you haven't got to worry about like analytics and things like that basically as long as copies get sold you're you're laughing um i think i think it's important that uh we've 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 earmarked the kind of things that we want to take from that so strong visual element, um, sort of like things that immediately come out and grab you, which I think is uh, something that's very, very important. But also we've got the time and the space and um, the sort of uh, heritage that's like built into audiences that are going to be picking up these publications where they know that it's probably going to be countered to the kind of things that they see pop up in their timeline, like constantly, constantly, constantly. We're not reporting on so-and-so might be going to whichever team or uh, as Dan said boiling down like his like, historic moments in not even just football in like British culture in European culture and like world culture like some of like the most watched sporting moments in the world boiling it down to uh, this team won they did this uh, this bloke scored three goals this bloke scored none I've said I've said it time and time again. I've definitely written things where I've been extremely proud of it, and there might be some um, facts that, especially in the early days before we had a sub editor, and it was all sort of a bit sort of like fly by night, that might not have been a hundred percent correct. Because like to me, I wrote it with sort of like nostalgia in mind, and like, I know that a lot of people reading it, uh, nostalgia and how they felt at that moment, or um, how they remember goals or how they remember games or how they remember players is way 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 more important than um the actual number of like goals that they scored or whether or not they're even that good i think that 
I, th- I think that we've been guilty of maybe a tiny bit sort of like rose-tinted glasses, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As long as we've still got um, a foothold in modern football and we're not constantly looking back and going, oh, wasn't it everything better then? It's all really shit now. I think that I think it's just latching on to the kind of things that um, made us all fall in love with the game like when we were kids. When I was when I was a kid and I was watching like Zidane um, like dance around Brazilian defenders in like the World Cup final in '98, I wasn't going. Oh, his pass completion rate is uh, is very high this game. I would just I like I could, I could, literally could not wait to run out to the garden and start doing pirouettes and just like splintering my fence with like this this flat football. It's just it doesn't it doesn't really matter who even won. Like I, if you read our magazine sometimes. Like you wouldn't even be able to tell who won half the games because it's about so much more than that. And I think that online is definitely guilty of uh, being a bit too prescriptive with statistics, definitely, um, and then sort of like leaving heart behind because I think that everyone has to be sort of like very much like get in, get out. Here's your information. Uh, thanks for reading. Also, here are some other articles that you might be interested in. Uh, please click our sponsors. Whereas we haven't really got to worry about that. We know that people are buying it. They're sitting down on the train or they're sitting down on a Sunday afternoon, cup of tea, feet up before the football starts. And they're willing to commit uh, 45 minutes even to like some of our longest articles or like 10 minutes, 20 minutes. If you look at a bounce rate, like I'm sure you guys know, like if you look at a bounce rate of a website, uh, the, av- the average time spent on, a, on a, an article is like, if you're lucky, 15 seconds, 30 seconds. We got we got so much more time with that, and I think with that we've been allowed so much more space to tell the kind of stories that we want to create. Yeah, I think I think what Sam says about the um, the reasons we remember these footballers or the reasons we love these footballers, even it, it's not necessarily a nostalgia thing. I think the reasons man the reason Manchester United fans love Zlatan Ibrahimovic is the same reason they love Cantona, and that's not because their stats are comparable. That's not because they've achieved the same sort of thing in the game. It's because of what they do to their emotions and how, and how they um, represent the team. It's like, it, whether we look at nostalgic things or not, if you look at, if you boil Diego Maradona down to how many goals he scored for which teams, that's not a very interesting thing. But if you talk about the hand of God and you talk about his time in Naples and how he interacted with that community, they're very, very interesting stories. They're rich stories which, are, um, which talk about culture and talk about um, what interests us about football and the characters within the game, um, you, you don't get to, as as ever, as we all know, you don't get time to do that online. Um, it's it's to it's to a much more niche audience uh, than online caters for at the moment. I mean, I can only think of a specific example. So, say um, Marcus Rashford, who's like a young England striker, plays for Man United. If you look at his stats, uh, they're pretty good. They're all right. He's a, he's he's like an eighteen year old player came through. Scored a few goals, has kind of not really done as well this season. But to me, he's still one of the most exciting players I've watched in a long, long time, just from the way that he approaches football, which is something that, again, like Dan said, just can't be boiled down to, to stats and, and numbers. It's something that, that appeals to so much more. There are so few times when I'm watching football now where I genuinely don't know what's going to happen. And he was one of those players where he'll pick up a ball and go like, well, anything, literally anything can happen now. And this kid's 18. And he has no fear. I think that that's something that like really appeals to me as a fan, and it appeals to me as a writer. And I feel like uh, sometimes people can be a bit 
Uh, I, I guess this is what happens when you live in a social media age. Everyone's very quick to uh, boil everything down to, oh yeah, but he didn't, didn't score though, I guess. Or if you look at his Wikipedia page, he's like in parentheses, he's got, I don't know, 15 goals instead of 60 odd. Do you know what I mean? I think it's interesting when you hear fans of other sports or, or maybe um, new football fans talk about how they got into football as if it was a, a choice that they made or like the, the, the team that they chose and stuff for, um, for pretty much, I speak on behalf of everyone at Mundial, we did, kind of didn't have a choice or it was something that was just so natural to us and it was kind of something that was going on in the background before you even realised it was happening your parents talked about it your grandparents talked about it it was kind of the cornerstone of the community that you grew up in it was the first thing on every male role model in your life's lips when they, they saw you you were bought a kit before you even knew what it was um, so that so getting into football was never really an issue for any of us it was just it was what it was and you, you learned to love it even if it wasn't something that interested you as a very small child um, in terms of liking football on a deeper level or getting to know it as a writer or as someone who's got an interest in the surrounding culture, I think that, again, is just being close to it. As much as these teams want to be global superpowers, and they, they are in many ways, unless you can be really close to the people who attend these matches and have seen all the trophies that your team have lifted and stuff, I think that's what brings you really close to these teams and, and gets you to start looking at the history of the sport and the amazing players that maybe have gone before and have influenced uh, the culture of your club and the clubs around that. That's what it was for me. I grew up as a Liverpool fan who had a massive period of success right up until the point when I was born and then everything sort of tailed off a bit, um, <laughs> which was strange, but it meant that I had to look back a lot to get interesting things and um the amazing stories that my dad and my granddad would tell about Liverpool when they were at their best, when they were playing against the best in the world, when, when football was um, all that a city had to cling on to. These, these were, this is what made me um, more interested in what football meant to people than what it was that was happening on the pitch. Um, I guess on, like, on the other end of the spectrum, to Dan, who supported... Uh... Uh, quite a successful team I supported West Ham which again I had no choice in uh, which was a, like a, in, at least in Premier League terms not a successful team at all I think I kind of lent very well into uh, the kind of stories I ended up writing or being or gravitating towards uh, because it's very much about uh, like finding like glory wherever you can like if it's in uh, being a scrappy team there's some something to take away from that or having a nice kit even like West Ham always had very nice kits it was just we were never a team that was winning very much like never in my lifetime have we ever won a trophy uh, the closest we actually the closest we ever came was uh, losing to Liverpool but I won't I won't talk about that but like um, so it, it became something uh, like almost a source of pride sort of like an underdog mentality um, and it was it was something that really fostered a community of of uh, people a, a, a bit sort of like I guess you get it a lot in sort of especially where I grew up like quite in a quite a working class area in London and my dad's like a cab driver so there's not that many things he's into apart from football and very quickly you learn that they start the especially in England it's the big common denominator that no matter where you go who you talk to 
chances are at least sort of like eight or nine times out of ten if you go did you see the Chelsea game at the weekend or Leicester aren't doing very well at the minute or Arsene Wenger's got to go chances are that you're, you're kind of like you can breathe out and you, you'll have you'll, you'll find common ground so it, it was very much but then also football to me was something that came very naturally because uh like I've always played it. Like I've, 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 like growing up, I played for two teams. It felt very normal to me to to dedicate four or five days, uh, four or five days out of my week to playing football. The other two to like watching it. It felt like something that like everyone did. So when I found out when I grew up a little bit, and I found out that not everyone spent their time like that, it was mind boggling to me that there that there were people out there whose lives didn't subconsciously revolve around these lads on a pitch kicking a football around. And so I guess I kind of like got into writing about football because um, I was doing so many other things that never really um, took, like I was working in telly a little bit. I did a little bit of radio and then just bored. I just started writing, couldn't really find anything to write about. So I was like, you know, what? I'll, I'll write about football, like write what you know and all that. And then it all just sort of like trickled on from there. When something's in print, there's a credibility to it and, and maybe an authority, you know, outside since everybody has a channel on, on social and anybody can kind of do that, you know, the, when you have something that feels nice in your hands and um, it feels more authentic maybe and it's, and it's documented and it feels permanent. And so it has, especially now, you know, and, you know, I, I think I grew up in an era where, you know, pre-internet, and everything was print, and then print went away. And now that it's back, if you do print in a more special way, it, it, it does feel special and it has this unique permanence. And I think there's a lot of people now, like younger, the younger generation, that have only experienced print that way, where it feels like a very special type of object. And there's something also to say about experiencing content that has edges on it. You know, you can, you can open and close it and there's a beginning and end. And, you know, with, with the internet, it's endless scrolling. And so there's a, there's a very key difference. For franchise, we started very much on purpose as print only. And, and that was a very, um, conscious decision to, as a reacting out against what was going on with not just sports media, but, but in particular basketball media. And we felt that maybe there, it needed to be elevated. You know, the, the sport itself had matured, you know, beyond sneaker culture and beyond, you know, ESPN. And we wanted it to feel elevated. And for us, print was the way to do that. And we wanted to get that right out the gate. And, you know, for us also, it's, it's an indie publication. It's not a big run. And so the idea is how do we create, we create you know, something that feels like a collectible object and maybe has a sense of scarcity to it. Um, and so that's been our strategy out the gate with, with Stockus as well. We, we're working with, you know, kind of brands that we like, brands that, that we think already have a high level of curation, you know, like Undefeated, Opening Ceremony, Kith, um, Colette. So we're in some places that we think 
you know, people already respond to and trust. And that's the way we wanted to roll out the brand and rather than try to do something that was everywhere at the same time. It's like, let's make an object that you, know, you kind of have to find and discover. And, you know, and, it, and so as we did that, you know, obviously we need to do something on digital. And for us, our main digital channel is Instagram. And that's that's a place where we're a highly visual publication. And so it makes a lot of sense for us to spend a lot of time there um, doing visual storytelling. And, and that's a chance for us to um, do something constant. Uh, you know, our publication comes out about quarterly and there's a lot of time in between issues. And so how do we kind of keep the audience that we're building and and Instagram's been the place for that. And we're growing that. We're starting to grow Twitter as well. But I think, you know, Instagram makes the most sense for us. And, but we're, we're challenged with how do we recreate the success of the print publication in digital? And obviously we want to scale and we want to make this a sustainable business. And digital is sort of the way to get more eyeballs on it and, and lead to other things. But, but we're, we are very conscious of trying to, um, make sure that feed is as curated and feels as premium and, and special as the print publication does. In America, the two big, the three biggest sports are baseball, American football, and, uh, and basketball. And revenue-wise, American football is by far generates the most revenue uh, across the states. But if you look at social media, the NBA, it, it dominates every other sport in the U.S., and it dominates it globally. So the, for the NBA, Twitter is just, it goes crazy. You know, every day it's going nuts with a million people with hot takes, and it's huge in China, it's huge in Japan, Australia, Canada, it's, it's all over. So there's so much going on digitally and there's, you know, and I'm very actively, you know, reading things going on. There's so many people with great hot takes. And so that's, that's something. Do we want to just kind of jump into that fray? Um, or, you know, how do we carve out our special, you know, our special place and, and have a channel that's worth, worth checking out outside of that. So that's definitely a challenge because there is a ton of noise. Uh, I feel like those things are just kind of like pulling in both directions. Like sometimes I just get like really apathetic in my head and I'm just like, idiocracy, the movie is self-prophesizing every day. Like everything is about clicks and everyone's stupid. But then, you know, there's like these really heartening figures too, like, you know, print media is coming back. Final sales are like, you know, so high right now. People like, you know, tangible objects and they like depth. Um, but I mean, like, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I love like investigative journalism. I subscribe to the New Yorker. Um, I get it in print every week and I always carry it with me. Um, and I love just like really getting into an article, um, whether it's like about like, you know, high school kids and concussions or it's like, you know, about Pedro Almodovar, whatever. Um, and I know that there's like, you know, some like, you know, really big sports people that like have like their version of that. Me telling my friends that like, I'm like, 
you know, I'm working on franchise and before they see it, like, what's that? I'm like, it's this like magazine, but it's about like basketball, art and culture. And they're like, just like, look at me like, that sounds really whack because I think what they're thinking of is like, you know, like basketball cards or something. And then they see it and they're like, Oh, like I get it. You know, this is like, it's like really nice, like product coffee table book collectible item. Like, yeah. I'm like, what did you think? Like these like tops or something? Like, no. <laughs> I think that people might find it a bit tacky because it's, it's populist. You literally can't find something that's more popular than, well, especially football being like the most watched sport, most played sport in the world. I think people are always going to sort of like feel a weird um, urge to kind of contradict and to go against what's like like com- completely popular. So I think I think that people kind of go like, "Well, sports for for meatheads." I'm like an intellectual. I don't need to do that. Don't need to read about it. Don't need to watch it really because uh, it kind of gets shoved down your throat anyway. Or the, why people are so uncomfortable with the, the commercial aspect of particularly football is, and it's not just an English thing, it's kind of, it's kind of it was internationally a working class sport. And you hear all these like very romantic stories about you used to be able to see your favourite striker because he lived on the same street as you and he drove the same sort of car. And you, you know, my, my granddad tells a story about Everton and Alan Ball used to walk across pitch with his boots slung over his shoulder and walk into the changing room because he lived two minutes from Goodison Park um, Everton's ground and so to see it change in the past 40 years from that to Paul Pogba having his own emoji is why people are kind of reacting in such a way because it's such a short time for a sport to change in that way um, maybe that's that's why it's such a divided audience at the moment you get, you get people who are just getting into it and only know Pogba and Messi and Neymar and you get this kind of older audience, this more established audience who are really uncomfortable with that fact about football. I think um, a lot of it comes down to a cultural difference between, without to paint too many, uh, especially Americans with like too broad a brush, I think that comes down to uh, a way that um, advertisement is is so ingrained into American culture, like you'll watch a sporting event that has constant ad breaks, whereas that's just completely alien to us. Like so many people are so freaked out by the Super Bowl because every time there's a stopping play, there's an advert. Like that, that just doesn't make sense to us. I think so. I think a lot of Americans are so used to being sold to a lot that it makes sense, and they kind of like root for that player to get that amazing deal and to be like doing these like funny car adverts and. Like, um, and, and that kind of thing. Whereas in the UK, it's almost like, um, what Dan said about Raheem Sterling and the stories that came out in the tabloids about him buying his mum a house. It's some, this is a millionaire who came from like pretty much nothing buying, like treating his mum. But whereas in the, in uh, the US, at least like from my knowledge of it, that'd be treated as a thing that's like a really great story something to be like to take pride in in the in the uk especially in the tabloid press uh it was like a, a stick to beating with it was it was completely sort of like spoke so terribly of his character that he lost and then still bought his mum a house i think i think um the the way that 
um, Britain and America approaches money is different. I think that money is a thing to be um, sort of like never spoken about in the UK. That probably comes down to a class, uh, our class structure and and uh, how and sort of like a carrying your money in sort of like a dignified manner. There's a reason why um, people like Colin McGregor do so well in America because it kind of like leads into that sort of the, all the traditional sort of like uh, the cliched notions of American dream. Cause like people want to see ostentation. They take it as a, something when you've got to look at the, the president of the United States. It's a bloke who led on a campaign of ostentation. Look at me, vote for me. I've got a big gold hotel. That kind of thing would never, that thing would never fly here. Everyone's constantly sort of like not pleading poverty, but they, they're, they're made to almost feel like ashamed of them making money, which, which has always felt like a very strange thing to me. Like, I, like I'd love to approach it in the same way that Americans approach it, but it's ingrained in me that I'm like, hmm, don't really like, uh, people showing off their money. It's only very recently where I've gone like, yeah, good for you. Like, yeah, go spend your money. Go buy your mum a house. Go buy a gold car. You get 300 grand a week. That's what I'd be doing. Whereas I, I think, I think, I think it's a massive cultural difference. Well, I guess there is like this, you know, um, kind of like to commercialization, there is this sort of like, it's just like this kind of like blatant, like capitalism. Um, and it is like this kind of like extreme thing. Um, and it's, that's not cool. It's not appealing. It's very overt. It's, um, I'm not kidding you. I was at the store the other day and I saw NFL branded yogurt for men. It was black. <laughs> it was a tub of yogurt. It was like Oikos Greek yogurt. It was black and it really stood out. I'm like, what is this? I have to go investigate. And I look at it and it's NFL branded. And so I'm there with like my gay friend and I'm like, do you see this? And he's like, <laughs> He's like, ugh. And he's like, well, like, you know, you can't bring in your, like, gay Noosa yogurt. (laughs) What would Kyle and Trevor think? You need to buy the NFL yogurt. (laughs) That's black. Um, So, once again, I'm like, yeah, commercialization and, like, this, like, just cheesiness. I feel like for, like, um, a while, like, at the, like, late 90s, there was just this, like, I, I think, like, was it like the Timberwolves like old logo? I don't know. It's just like, it was kind of cheesy and ugly. Now like teams are kind of like coming around, like, you know, with like rebrands and it's just looking more suave. It's sort of one of these things with, with sports and the commercialization, you know, money, it's inseparable and it's, and it's, you know, it's only going to, um, get deeper ingrained and there's sort of no point in kind of you know resisting that i think i think in in many ways it's it's great and it's great for the fans it's great for the players i mean the nba now is getting the players themselves are getting flushed with cash there there's so much money pumping into the league through tv contracts and and sponsorships that, and that's getting distributed to these players. And, you know, and then you see, you see, a an effect after that because now these players have enough money to do investments. And, and there's a lot of players in uh, starting VC funds now and, and investing in tech and investing in, in other things. And so there, there's so many positives to it. And, and yeah, I think, 
you know, for us as an indie publication, it's like, okay, how do we exist in that space and, and go beyond working with brands that are, you know, going beyond a, a, a full page ad, you know, it, where, you know, we want to, we want to work with brands in a more authentic way. And, you know, so then how do you do native sponsorship in a way that aligns with your brand values? So I think, you know, for us, it's for, for publications. And I think also for even individual athletes involved in the sports, I think if you sort of know, if you define your own values, whether they be personal or, or kind of your company or publication values, you have a North Star to help guide you as you work with brands and as you're sort of dealing with money and, you know, um, how does the publication survive and scale and stay afloat? And, and, you know, we want to keep doing this, so it needs to make money. But, you know, how do we do it in a way that's that we're all happy with? Um, so I think those those are kind of the... Right now, it's it's really navigating it. I think it's um, I've sort of accepted that part of it, and and I'm definitely of the mentality where I think it's in general very positive things. It's I think it's amazing. Um, you know, as far as as far as sneaker culture, and you know, obviously Nike has always been the number one, you know, it, since the Air Jordan, right? It's it's just been sort of the leader in the U.S. with, with basketball. And there's there's been some brands chipping away at that market share now. Adidas is doing some amazing lifestyle shoes. And, you know, now we're starting to see Under Armour come in and try to chip away at the performance market. And with Under Armour in particular, because they have Steph Curry, they're going after the a much younger audience. They've sort of recognized they aren't going to convert people that grew up with Jordans. Like we're we're never going to go and switch to Under Armour. So they're going after kids that are in elementary school, and for those kids, they want the Curries. You know, they have the player that those those kids that that resonates with those kids and and that's what they want. And I don't think I was talking to to a buddy of mine who's who's got a kid in elementary school and he he was having to explain brands to him cuz he thought he thought Nike was sort of a the umbrella brand for everything and and he didn't really understand that Adidas and and uh and Under Armour and all these things were not, you know, part of Nike. So he explained it to him. But you know, the way the way they react to it, they they ask for the Curries. They don't ask for Under Armour and things like that. So they don't really know that yet. They're they're responding to players. Steph Curry seems, in many ways, like a like an average human. You know, he's he's not that tall. He's not big and strong like LeBron James or something. Where. You know, there, there's certain players that that um, you just they're they're superheroes. You know, they're just enormous humans and and um, big and powerful, and that's why they're so dominant. And somebody like Steph Curry, you know, a kid in high school can look at Steph and be like, you know what, I'm about his height and weight, and I could do that. And, you know, and Steph has a baby face and, and kind of his demeanor. So I think he, he really responds with young, the younger generation. And, 
you know, there's some, he's somebody they can look up to and just his style of play. It's, it's not physical. It's, Hey, I'm going to step back and shoot 30 foot three pointers. And, you know, and then he's had a couple of amazing seasons and dominated the league doing that. So I think that's really why he's resonating. A lot of the stories we tell are attached to brands. Um, Adonassa's got an amazing history and heritage in football. So is Nike. They've got all these amazing commercials from the, the 90s, which we love as pieces of art, which are commercial pieces of art. I think the, diff, the point of difference for um, football compared to maybe American sports is that American sports have been uh, directly involved in commercial things a lot longer and um, Michael Jordan's Nike deal is part of the culture of the game and it, it, you know the, the band shoe is part is, is, is woven into the history of, of the sport um, whereas you look at his contemporary in football Diego Maradona he wears Puma but that's not really part of his story at all he's kind of the, the best players are always the rebels who strike out against that sort of thing He's got a Che Guevara tattoo. He pretends to not want and to love money. That that's his character. Cruyff removing a third strike from his Adidas Holland kit because he had a deal with Puma and didn't want to play that game. Did all those players who kind of they are associated to brands, but it's it's nowhere near as part as much part of their story as, as Steph Curry and Under Armour is or Michael Jordan and Nike is. So I think that's that, that's a, that's a key difference. So we'll we'll tell parts of these stories which are really pertinent, but it's not as directly woven into the fabric of the sport, or at least it wasn't until very recently. Finding your voice and, and doing it in a way that kind of who you're interviewing, it kind of depends on. I mean, I think for, for our publication, and, and I think this, this extends to Mundial as well, we're looking for athletes that do have other interests outside the sport. You know, people that are, that are involved in music and, you know, involved in, you know, other types of businesses and things. And, you know, there, there's several athletes like that, that, you know, there's a lot of athletes recording music. And those are the types of people that we're looking for, people that are, have genuine interests outside of just playing a game. You know, when you do get access to a player, it's, it's sort of a, an internal challenge of, you know, what is our take and, and sort of what is, how do we talk to an athlete kind of about what's going on in the moment, but do it in a way that sort of represents our brand? you know, that, that also is going to elicit a, a good response and, you know, then get us continued access. So I think that's a challenge. I mean, we, we had an opportunity down at um, All-Star Weekend to interview um, Dwayne Wade from the Chicago Bulls. And, you know, that was, that was pretty amazing. And, and for us, that aligns with a lot of the things we're interested in, too, because he's so involved in the fashion world. He has an international presence. His, his, the shoe company he has a deal with now is a Chinese brand. And we kind of came to it, luckily, from that angle. And, you know, Kasha uh, handled the interview on that for us. And Kasha, you can jump in too. But it was, it was really kind of talking to him about, you know, the influence of fashion and, and 
you know, we were also able to inject a little bit of humor as well, asking him, Kyrie Irving recently suggested that the earth is flat. So we uh, had a good laugh asking him his take on that as well. Huh? Yeah, he was just saying, like, the world is flat. They don't want you to know otherwise. And um, so then, you know, uh, they're like, okay, hey, we have this opportunity to interview Dwayne Wade. What should we ask him? And I'm like, well, we should ask him if he also thinks the world is flat. And, um, you know, the guys were like, awesome. Yeah. Like we need to, we need to make that happen. So, <laughs> uh, so then the next day, you know, I mean, his wife was there too, like the beautiful Gabrielle, uh, Gabrielle Union. And so I'm like, all right, you know, warm him up, like questions about his wife, collaborating, like, you know, fashion. You know, and get to the hard stuff, like the shape of the world. So I just asked him, like, you know, um, yeah, I know there's like conflicting accounts, but like, what's your take on the shape of the world? And he was just laughing. He's like, oh my God, that's right. Cause Kyrie said the world was flat, you know? And, um, he gave a really awesome diplomatic answer. He was like, you know, the world is whatever you make it to be. <laughs> like, no, it's, it's not flat though. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we had recorded the interview and, um, then we put it up on Twitter and we had tagged Dwayne Wade in it and, and he retweeted us. I mean, he like, I don't know several other people had interviewed him that day, but that's like what he retweeted. And then after that, it's like, you know, we got like a thousand likes on it or something. talking with Amanda and, you know, like I met Lauren at All-Star Weekend. Those are the two women that were interviewed for our piece. Um, Amanda Fisher was a graphics designer for the NBA in the 90s. And Lauren Fisher is, uh, she does 3D court projections and projects for the NBA now. I interviewed Amanda. Um, Brock interviewed Lauren, but I, you know, having like been familiar with Lauren's work for over a year now. It was a pleasure meeting her this weekend. Um, and it's just, you know, I forget it, um, at times because I'm surrounded with like very good men in my life, but you kind of like realize like, yeah, that's right. You know, like as a woman, you're automatically like this, like outsider. Um, you know, it's sort of like, what is your place here? Um, you know, people will, there's been times where like, you know, why I'm here has been questioned. Or if we're looking at something, it's like someone starts mansplaining or just straight up being like, oh, here, why don't you have your boyfriend um, show you what this is? And it's like, no, I know what's going on. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need it explained. Um, so I think if uh, a woman isn't like, you know, scantily clad and, you know, on the sidelines kicking and, you know, spirit fingering, then it's just... Uh, yeah, it's like this alien being. <laughs> With All-Star Weekend, it's not just purely like, you know, because it's like, it's the NBA, of course, but it's like, you know, sponsorship. So like, you know, there's like all the Nike people and like, you know, there's like, um, you know, Levi's was there and just like a lot of companies. And then there, there was like women who were like doing PR and things like that. But, you know, just like really like in terms of like, yeah, NBA women, I, or press women, I didn't come across any. And I mean, just kind of seeing what's playing out on the news with like, you know, um, 
Erin Andrews, um, who isn't, a, you know, NBA, but she's a sports reporter. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, there's that guy like spying on her through, you know, that whole scandal. I mean, it was like a peeping Tom situation and she was like filmed, like, you know, like, I don't know, changing or something. So I don't necessarily know if it's come a long way. <laughs> not to say they're not like artists, but like, it's not like you're asking them about their last painting or something like they're kind of like, and plus it's like, there's everyone's asking those same questions. It's kind of boring. You know, I think maybe for them, it's nice to be seen as people <laughs> like go figure. Um, you know, so, you know, I'm like, yeah, with Dwayne, I'm like, what's it like working with your wife? You know? And he's like, Oh yeah. Like not like, you know, tell me about what it's not like with Pat Riley and his oppressive coaching. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, to be honest with you, we've mostly been talking with artists. Um, and so he was like a player we spoke with. And then other than that, you know, we spoke with James Goldstein. Like he was super forthcoming uh, or, you know, Dwayne was super forthcoming. But um, I guess as like the magazine continues to evolve, we'll see what our player interviews are like. But I, I think definitely like still just like, you know, a heavy like, Oh, I mean, I would love to interview Amari Sotomayor, who used to play on the Suns, and he's super into art, which, you know, that would be like, yeah, we're going to talk about, like, your time in Phoenix, but, like, you know, I want to hear about, like, Amari is the person. I think if you went to one of these events where you get access to a footballer and you ask the footballer who he'd rather speak to, is it going to be a 50, 60-year-old man in a suit who's been doing it 40 years and is tired of it and all he wants out of that interview is an angle that he can spin and sell a headline and kind of trip up the footballer a little bit or does the footballer want to speak to someone like us who's first of all absolutely thrilled to meet someone that we get to watch and get such joy from every weekend and secondly want to know about why they play football and want to know all the things that um, inspire them to make us so happy. I think if you ask the footballer that question, then they're going to choose us nine times out of ten because they're not going to want to be splashed all over the front of the sun or the star or whatever newspaper it is. Um, they're going to want to talk about the, the, the positive elements of their career that they've worked so hard to earn. But I think if we dedicated the front cover of our magazine to Raheem Sterling buying his mum a kitchen or buying his mum a new house. Um, people wouldn't pick us up in four months' time, never mind the very next day. You know, there wouldn't be, we'd upset a lot of people who uh, value our editorial. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe some newspapers have gone too far down the route of people are just going to pick it up anyway so we can print what we like about these footballers. We're more often not very, very grateful to get access to players because it, it's it's relatively new to us and it's it's a nice thing to, to meet. Whether they're your heroes or not, it, it's a nice thing to meet people who've done great things in the sport you love. Maybe the traditional setup uh, jars a little bit with our editorial format. You know, if, if you get 10 minutes with a player, the questions are often vetted and they have to be about specific things and you can't mention certain things that are going on in their career or off the pitch which is fine and we, and we understand that and we'll, we'll play the game to a certain extent but if it starts to um, really compromise our editorial then we'll, t we'll, we'll kind of turn these opportunities down we don't want to um, 
we don't want to take a name for the sake of it. That doesn't that doesn't really sell us magazines. That's not why people pick Mundial up because you're going to get ten minutes with Jamie Vardy or Daniel Sturridge or whoever it may be. They pick it up because we tell bigger stories. And if if we get the opportunity to speak to someone, and that means we can't tell those bigger stories, then it's kind of pointless. It comes down to the fact that uh, what Dan was saying. If you want ten minutes with uh, some England international. You can pick up 10 different magazines that are going to do that. There's no benefit to us in playing the same game that everyone else is doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we have to play the game uh, in terms of how we get players. And then when we do, obviously, it's very exciting. I've interviewed Danny Welbeck, which, is, which was really cool. I've interviewed like footballers where I tell my mates at home and they're like, oh, fuck, like, what was he like? What was he like? These are really exciting things to a lot of people, including us. But I think it, I think it is important uh, for us um, how we're we might not be set up to be the big Instagram mega brands because probably uh, not to our detriment, but we, we've, de- we've definitely sort of like courted this almost air of um, uh, unaccessibility at times. We, we do a lot of in jokes. We, we tell a lot of stories that kind of like only make sense to um, people with like a certain sense of humor or with a similar frame of reference, which, which doesn't really come across, but like, these are like tiny little things that sort of like make um, a magazine different to a lot of people. Some people probably wouldn't even realise they're there, but the sort of people that notice them, they'll be like, okay, cool. And, and, and immediately they'll gravitate to these people. But that's a, that's a very easily broken bond. So I think, I, I think you, may, you might get like one or two slip ups, but as soon as you're on the third one, I think people are very quick to sort of find you out. And I mean, we're an independent publication. We can't afford too many of them. You're as, you're as good as your last issue. One really bad issue and we're out of the shops. People stop buying us. Reads Mundial Magmanch is a joke that we've completely stolen wholesale from popular menswear website, Four Pins. Um, but it's the only slight difference is that the photograph has to relate. Well, not even that much, but like slightly to football. Um, yeah, there's not much more in it than that. <laughs> then we saw Four Pins doing it. We know some of the guys at Four Pins. We think they're really funny, so we nicked their joke. I think that was kind of like another layer on top of that joke, where we knew that the like at least a certain section of our audience would know the joke through Four Pins, and it was kind of it was kind of funny that we were like wholesale just nicking it. Like I, I wrote there for about a year. I know you've written there a few times. Uh, we've had a couple of their writers write for the write for the magazine and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just. It was just a very funny idea um, for us to sort of like test that out and to to see if we could make out that this like little niche magazine could be a thing. I think that was part of the joke at Four Pins that no one really read Four Pins. That's why they that's that's why the website started because they only read it once. So for that joke to actually have been actually grown outside of our circle and go off of our Instagram and go off of our Twitter accounts and for people to actually at us in it and. Uh, someone come up to me at a, a different magazine's launch the other week, and he's like, "Oh, look, it looks, I look like I've read Mundial once." That's that's just so weird to us. I think I think it it um, goes back to that sort of like that shared frame of reference, where even if you don't quite get the joke, you get why the joke has been made. And who doesn't like to be in on a joke? People are very quick to sort of pick things up. I I, I, I quite like the fact that ninety nine percent of them are taking the piss out of ourselves as well. It's it's never someone who look it's never someone who looks really really cool who's read Mundial Mag once. It's someone who's kind of who's kind of got it slightly wrong and has attached themselves to football because they think it's cool at that moment in time or something along those lines. So I think the people who maybe we've had detractors in the past who, who've kind of had this idea of 
oh, well, that's the kind of person that reads Mondial Man. So that's just us getting on in that in, with that joke as well. That's going, yeah, I know that is. Yeah, Drake obviously knows nothing about football, but he likes that pink Juve top. He's read Mondial Man once, so that's kind of us taking the joke back a little. I think I think it's um, an important sort of like area for us, like that mixture between sort of sincerity and insincerity. We're very sincere about the things that we care about, which are usually uh, quite insincere things. Like I'll write like a, a heartfelt ode to like a nutmeg, or Dan will like wax lyrical about a really nice pair of football shorts. I think that sort of like that irreverence is like what 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 people need, I guess, because like there's so many other people that just take themselves so seriously and that refer to themselves as journalists as soon as someone refers to me as a journalist I like visibly cringe like I, like, I didn't go to journalism school or anything so it, it becomes one of those things where we kind of like we, we very we, we, we set our stall out early and we take the piss out of ourselves sort of like almost to like do it before anyone else does but it's become sort of like a badge of pride now I think that, I think there'll always be an audience for a, a well told story whether that's 400 words someone like deadspin does um very very well with very few words some of my there's some of my favorite writers on that website and they can do a lot in 500 words but then again like you look at someone like Wright thompson at uh, espn mag or tom junod who's just gone there or um like brian phillips when he was doing um tennis at grantland they've got three four thousand words to play with you've got good writers people are going to read it I think people are starting to invest in long-form journalism, not because long-form is the thing, but because people just want stories. And as soon as they're not getting them, people will go the complete opposite way. So they'll go and they'll go and read like a 6,000-word story. They might not read it all, but the fact that it's there is one exciting to people. People like reading books because it makes them feel smart. They'll read a 9,000-word article on The Guardian about Russian spies because it makes them feel smart. They'll read a really, really well-researched piece by Wright Thompson about uh, Luis Suarez's history and going through his story in Uruguayan football because it makes them feel smart. People want to, like, this, this is, it's one of the things I think that gets overlooked quite a lot. People want to feel smart and they want to read a good story. And I think that that's so much more important than time. I think people always make time for something that's good. I think storytelling is always hard when you're telling a story to someone who thinks that they know better than you or that they already know the story. I think that that's definitely the case with, that I've always found with football. I think there's like an old cliche that it's a game of opinions. All sports are game of opinions. Everything's about opinions. Uh, never more so than online. And if you're trying to say, if you're trying to tell a story of something that happened in the pub to your mate who's also in the pub, they're going to be less interested. And then if you're telling them a story about something that they literally have no idea about. And there's so few things in football that people don't know about now because it's a, it's a constant 24 hour cycle where you know everything about everything. And like even casual fans will be able to tell you, um, about how well Draxler, like Draxler did like before he signed for PSG. Oh, he was really great at Schalke. Like 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't a thing. People didn't know those kind of things. So it became harder to tell those kind of stories. So I think that it, it became sort of like in our best interest or in, in writer's best interest to kind of go back to basics. So we've come to a point where everyone kind of knows the bare facts of football and you can't really romanticise those um, those moments anymore if, if someone knows where this player played before, how well he played. That cuts out half of our half of the story that, that a football writer would have traditionally told. Um so, so not to not to kind of moan and dramatise the fact that we're all tortured artists or anything, but it's become a lot harder to tell a unique story 
in, in football or, or to to wow people with your knowledge or anything like that. And maybe, maybe that's in many ways why um, writers have gone back to kind of, well, here's the basic facts. Here's everything that you've just seen or maybe you haven't seen. And um, we're just presenting it without any extra bits tagged on, without any narrative to it, without any storytelling, without any colour. Um, that kind of... The, the proliferation of information, like raw information that you can get across the internet on any said footballer or team has kind of drained a lot of the, the tools that writers traditionally could have used. Um, I think, I think adding to that, um, I think when you look back at a time when people couldn't really watch like sports as easy as, as they, as they do now, even sort of like 20 years ago, like what Dan was saying, people, like writers were, were free to use so many more tools available to them because they had to. Like, you, like it was very important to use the color, like Dan was saying, and to use adjectives and things because you were, you're trying to paint a story for people who just don't have any idea of what you're talking about because they wouldn't be able to listen to it or everyone would be listening to it on the radio and they'd read about it in the paper just to just find out what, what actually happened, what that goal was actually like because you just heard noise crackling through a box in your car or in your living room. So I think using those tools that are traditionally of um, a past generation on say especially younger readers who have never really grown up with that i remember it blowing my mind when i went back and read uh, esquire of, of like the 80s or even like the early 90s uh, and then and um sports writing way before that in the new yorker and um sports illustrated and all these amazing magazines i was like why don't writers write like this anymore like they write they approach sports stories like novelists approach stories and it just seemed it just seemed like I always think it always boils down to the kind of writing that you get online is not the kind of writing that you'd ever tell anyone in the pub. I think if you turned around to someone and, and just sort of like reeled off a load of stats and you just have told a boring story, someone would turn around to you and go, that was quite a boring story. Why did you tell that story? Whereas online, I feel like the bar has been set so much lower for that. Maybe because of sort of like the banality of um, how the internet is. But yeah, I, I, I feel like we, we're trying to do something that uh, is kind of like a throwback to um, a different age of uh, sports writing. Probably better writers now than there may have ever been, but there's also more writers now than there's ever been. So it's very easy to sort of like jump on it and go, sports writing is not as good as it used to be. But like there are fant- fantastic writers writing for, like you've only got to look at how many great sports writers there were at Grantland at just at one single publication. There's probably like 10, 15 of my, my favorite writers. But then also... I'd say if you, if you even just pick one football club, say you pick Arsenal, there's probably about a thousand different Arsenal blogs. Each one of those has one or two different writers. Some of them had 15 diff- different writers. Everyone thinks that they can write because, um, especially with Twitter and a Facebook, social media, that all, all that kind of thing has given everyone an equal platform to speak, which is obviously great in so many different aspects. But sometimes just because you've been given a platform doesn't mean that you have to take it just because you've been given the microphone doesn't mean you have to speak do you know what I mean I think the breakdown of the traditional route into media is something that um, both myself and Sam have benefited from massively, and and Mundial has. Um, uh, you know, uh, not not so long ago, we would have had to go to a very specific university and gone through a very specific route career-wise to end up being able to have our own platform about um, to write. However, in that, 
the fact that you're not at a news desk and you're not learning from people who've gone before you, um, you're not learning from people who've got great experience at established titles, does have its drawbacks in, in the sense that you have to make the mistakes yourself and learn from them. So if you go through some of the early issues in Mundial, to be honest, if you go through the latest one or the one that's going to come out next week, you'll probably see things that we would have done differently, things that we will learn from, things that the magazine will build from. Um, whereas in, because we're all on a similar level, there's people who are more experienced on the team. Owen, who's, who's our features editor's got, um, you know, five or 10 years on me and Sam, but he's still learning on the job as well because, because he's not from a non, he's not from a traditional media background and he didn't learn everything, um, as wrote, which means we can be more creative, but also means that we probably make a hell of a lot more mistakes and we have to learn from them on the job. Yeah, I think I think it does lend to some perhaps bad habits that creep in from time to time. But then also, I think when you have that big traditional base and like especially when you grow up and 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 you go to these like quite prestigious universities and colleges and you go on these courses that like these fantastic journalists have have gone on to working on these like really big serious stories. Sometimes you can all end up writing the same. Whereas we all made um, like a conscious effort to to be completely counter to that and to write how we speak. We knew that we knew that we were all good in the pub and that people seemed to like hearing us talk. So we tried to write in a way that sort of represented that, which a lot of people at first uh, rubbed them the wrong way. And because it was like, well, it wasn't the done thing. They're using, they're being like very familiar and they're using words in a way that we wouldn't usually use words and using a bit of slang or, or just like, just, just writing like speech which seems like quite a simple concept, but is, is one, especially in sort of British media, in American media, especially in ma- uh, American magazines, uh, it seems to be one that's way more accepted. But if you look at the difference between uh, US GQ and UK GQ, it's like they come from a completely different world just because of the class structure that's involved in there and the sort of like the ingrained, I don't want to say bad habits, but sort of um, there are certain rules that you just don't break. And I think that a lot of titles are guilty of that, whereas because we didn't know them to begin with, we haven't, had, we haven't had to worry about them, so we can kind of make our own rules, which, yeah, it does mean that we make quite a few mistakes or we do some things that mm, not really regret because you can't really regret anything as long as you learn from it, but things that we would have done differently. I think that's a really exciting thing. And I think that people have, especially people that have, we've got quite a few readers that have been with us like since issue zero, since issue one, like the early stuff, which was a bit rough and ready, but they kind of got what we were about. And uh, I think they'll all agree that it, that it gets better and better and they can see that we're learning. Someone who works for Broadsheet has to go after someone who's got a really good Snapchat account at a press conference. And unfortunately, that's the way it is. And, and it, is, it is up to them to adapt because this side of the media or the, or the, 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 the more progressive football media and the people who are doing things differently and kind of pushing the medium on are only going to get more access. It's not, it's not going to revert to type. It's not going to be the Telegraph and the Mail getting access anymore. It's going to be younger people with with better stories or more interesting stories to tell than just spinning it for a headline. Can, if, if, if I can just add something to that, I think a lot's been said about sort of especially newspapers and about the the lack of success and the, the, the medium dying and the industry dying and that kind of thing. I think there's just, uh, it comes down to the fact that a lot of newspapers took um, access for granted. They take a lot of things for granted. They take their audiences for granted. They're like, well, they're always going to be there. Because it's a newspaper and you pick it up. It's a magazine and you subscribe to it. So I feel like as soon as you've got, 
it's, this, this definitely comes back to what Dan was saying about how um, the kid who's excited to be there um, with like a massive social following, he knows that you're pretty much only as good as your last story. Whereas these papers, they know that they can coast by on tradition and um, just sort of like a habit. Whereas that doesn't that doesn't work like that online. And I feel I feel like a lot of um, traditional newspaper outlets, especially, could do well to one hire younger people who actually have some experience outside of journalism um, and don't have what seems like like a, a contempt for like the industry that they work in and like the machinations of it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that they can't, like, that I, don't, I definitely think that there's a reason why the guardian, are one of the only people that are still doing like really, really class um, football output in, in terms of, in Britain, in terms of uh, newspapers is because they approach it in a way that's not um, trying to get one over on people all the time. That seems like, especially in British tabloid media, it seems like they're just trying to bring everyone down and everything's for a click or everything's for the pickup. I think that's probably why it's probably why the Guardian is struggling in their skin. But I, I feel I feel like it's gonna it's gonna, it's gonna come a time when everyone else is gonna catch up and that's gonna become the norm. I mean, I think it's just um, it's just changed, like because back then it's like if you kind of are looking at it like a pie chart or something, you know, you had. Um, like, you know, traditional media, you know, in the nineties or something. Now it's like that pie chart is split into like, there's, you know, sports illustrated. There's, you know, like the New York times. Then it's like, then you have their Instagram accounts. Then you have their like Snapchats, you know? So like image at the same time, I feel like the players have a lot more control over their image, like a lot more ownership. There's just all these different facets. Um, so like, if the, you know, of course, like papers can't write about it in the same way, um, because like it almost seems kind of like corny or hokey because, um, people get to see more of these people's lives. And, you know, it's like, what if it's like not congruent? Um, so I feel like it's almost like safer for them just to kind of give like a play by play of things that are happening and then let the, you know, other stimulus, like other, action be like accounted for in those other like avenues it's a fine line for players you know it, it's i think it's just it's hard for people to do it right in an and in an authentic way and it's there's sort of very few athletes that that are active on social media and, and speak their minds but do it in a way that's you know either uh, sort of independently good whether or you know they have they're showing leadership or, or whether it be political or, or otherwise in ways that would be good, whether or not they're an athlete or not. Um, I think that's tough. Somebody like Dennis Robin would probably be arrested, <laughs> you know, in today's it, it, with, with the number of, of cell phone videos, I would imagine, um, <laughs> of him. I, you know, some players like that, I'm just thinking you'd, you'd probably just end up in jail. He's just this, you know, a transcendent figure as far as, really pushing what's acceptable on the court and off the court. He was pushing boundaries the entire time, so he sort of is perfect. You could kind of put him in any era, and he'd be a celebrity and he'd be a star. But yeah, I think with the amount of documentation now, he would have a lot of trouble uh, you know, continuing to have a job. Players who we adore and we hold up and um, we get excited about their faults as much as we do 
the, the good things about them, and you, you build a whole story around George Best, and he had many faults, but he did amazing things, um, and that's part of his character. And there's a there's a million of them in football. You don't you don't get the chances to get away with things any, anymore. We, we we don't have to go on about Raheem Raheem Sterling's house. We can go on about anyone anyone of the past fifteen years from from Robbie Fowler right through to Wayne Rooney. Um, Anyone who's been in the public eye doesn't get a chance to um, express themselves for good or bad, and um, the, the the way we view stars of this generation in thirty years will will probably suffer for that. One thing that we've seen in the states is the NBA, in particular, has really embraced social media and really lets its lets its players speak their minds and and obviously in the political climate right now in the Trump era there's a lot to say <laughs> and and the NBA has been very active in in you know the NBA itself has been very active you know in speaking its mind and a lot of players are so that's one thing that that I think that as far as sports in the states the NBA is definitely by far the you know, have maybe the most lenient on on what they do. Obviously, everybody has handlers, and you know, brand sponsorships, and everybody wants to you know be mindful of all that. Um, there are some players doing it really well. That in particular, there's a young player named Joel Embiid, who's uh, from Africa, and he's turns out you know to be not only an amazing rookie, he's going to get Rookie of the Year. He's incredible on social media and he pulls off things that no one else can pull off. And, and I don't know how he does it, but you know, he takes a lot of risk and somehow it comes across as endearing. And he's just developed this inner, this, uh, this national fan base now. Um, is really because of his Snapchats and his Instagram stories and his Twitter account and, you know, it, and, it, and it's kind of what is his recipe? I don't know. Like he, he certainly gets by with things I, I wouldn't expect other people to. For the NFL, I think it has a lot to do with the the, the sport. Feels like a maybe a pre-digital era sport. It's it's kind of the, all the players are so covered up in giant pads, and the flow of the game is very disjointed. There's almost no flow to the game. Um, the fans, even in person, are very far away from the action, and so I think in in general, it's you don't get to know the players as well with you know with um, you know football and and basketball, you know where you see the players they they're not wearing pads and you get to know them. And they have personalities that you can see. And I think, I think that's resonated. I think, you know, also just for this season with the NFL, it's, uh, even though ratings were, were down a little bit in general, that, that league makes so much money and it's still by far the most, you know, has the biggest TV deals and makes the most, generates the most revenue in the States, uh, for a league. But yeah, the NBA is growing and growing and, and they're signing new, you know, their new TV agreements are, you know, amazing and they're growing internationally much faster than, than any other sport. And so I think that that's going to help them, uh, quite a bit. And, you know, I think it, it, the sport itself just lends itself to, um, 
television. I think more of the games are shorter than, than American football, and it's, it's much more of a joy to watch. I think it's, it's naturally, I say, I say naturally, uh, it's, it's, it's changed quite considerably uh, since the price of the, of the game has gone up and the kind of, pe- talking euphemistically, the kind of people that used to go to the football, so sort of a more traditional working class kind of fan has been driven out a little bit more. It definitely seems to um, suit a more affluent family atmosphere now. Like going back to my personal um, experience, um, West Ham recently changed their stadium from a very small family club, which um, had like a lot of soul and a lot of personality to it, but had, did have a history of some like, should we say naughtiness or uh, some, some, some negative aspects. Whereas now they've gone to a completely homogenized Olympic stadium where everyone's been priced out. It's been taken out of an area that was where it was so key to community and to shops and to so many businesses around it. So many families that had grown up around it been taken away from that now. And it's been put into um, a very gentrified area in Stratford uh, in the middle of like what is essentially like a wasteland. And so the kind of fans that are going to go to those games now are, are naturally going to be, be so much more different. And like, to, to be honest, I've, I've got no problem with people who are sort of like fair weather fans or they're just getting into football or want to take their kids to football without like being scared that someone's going to be like throwing drinks at them and stuff like that. It's kind of things that used to happen in British football and worse, way worse than drinks. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think it's changed for the better in terms of, um, obviously like safety and, um, like facility kind of like quite cold things. Uh, especially someone who hasn't got kids. I can talk, I can, I can like waylay safety pretty easily. Um, but what it's lost is just like so much heart and soul and sort of like authenticity and so many things that made it so important and what like gravitated so many people towards it that it was just like, it was essentially like the pub times like a million. And then also you had like this amazing like sport in the middle of it. It was just like a hub whereas now it's sort of akin to like going to the theater I mean, just because like it's in the theater doesn't make it, um, like it can, it could be an amazing play. Yeah, fine. But like it's only going to be seen by like certain amounts of people. And it, it, I think, I think people will, will find it harder to gravitate towards than this thing that feels like theirs, which, which is definitely what football has lost. It doesn't feel like, like ours anymore. It feels like it belongs to the money men and who they allow to go to it. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think the point Sam made in, in that we don't begrudge or, or a lot of people don't begrudge new fans to the sport or fans from a different background with the sport, but it's, it's the same at Liverpool. It's the same at Manchester United. It's the same at any number of clubs, West Ham included, that, um, they sell tickets off the back of this kind of history and heritage and, uh, you know, the, the amazing noise that the cop makes at Anfield or the, the fantastic support that Manchester United receives at, at, at Old Trafford. And at the same time as using that as a, a massive marketing tool to draw global fans in, they price out the people who created that atmosphere in the first place and created that rich heritage, um, which is just, just massively disrespectful, first and foremost, and, and also is, is not going to create, uh, there's no longevity in it. You know, you can only, you can only go on about 
the famous Anfield atmosphere that's created by these working class lads from a community in Liverpool for so long when it doesn't exist anymore because you've put the put the tickets up seven hundred percent in the last twenty years or whatever it is. That's gonna disappear and people are gonna get wise to it, hopefully. When we were when we were at NBA All Star Weekend, we had the opportunity to watch uh, uh, some games in VR, and that was incredible. It was, you know, they're setting up VR cameras, you know, in the in the first row, basically center court, underneath the basket, and you can watch, you know, live action from these seats that are, you know, for for like a Warriors game, those seats are thirty thousand dollars. So absolutely incredible. And I think you're going to start seeing, you know, as in other sports too, going into the future, the ways you're going to watch the game. I think it is going to move to, to <laughs> this VR uh, viewing experience. And I could imagine a scenario where you're paying to watch, you know, maybe paying a little more to set closer to the action. And, and almost selling virtual seats in that in that respect. So, pretty incredible, though. It, it, you know, I'm very skeptical going in of any VR experience, and I, I came out of that kind of um, pretty impressed. And, and our, I kind of immediately saw that, hey, this might be the future. As the Mundial team grows, obviously we've taken on new writers and. We sent um, one of our one of our newest guys, James, the other week to interview Roberto Carlos. <clears throat> Obviously, one of the most decorated footballers in the history of the game. Never mind the last twenty years. Um, he's he's playing in a tournament in the UK. We got amazing access. We got a translator. He, he he took a lot of time. He flicked through the magazines that we took for him. He was really nice. James came back, made up, and then when we asked him the other day to kind of what his favourite thing he'd done working for Montreal recently he gave perhaps the best answer we, we, we could have ever ever wanted and the most Montreal answer was that it wasn't in fact interviewing World Cup winner Roberto Carlos it was it was going back to Wolverhampton his hometown and interviewing two of the old guys who stand outside um, Molyneux the ground and they sell pork scratchings um, which is like a, a absolutely reprehensible snack based on pork fat um, I've I, I've grown up eating pork scratchings. So what, the first time I ever gave Dan a packet of pork scratchings, he nearly vomited all over the floor. So that was not good outside that pub. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> basically, basically, they are just sort of like uh, pieces of pig fat, deep fried and flavoured, and then put into a bag and then sold for money. It's like essentially sort of like the bits that would ordinarily probably should just be thrown in the bin, but because they're flavoured. Uh, in like a nice salty uh, like seasoning I'm like oh yeah cool I'll spend two pounds on those please that's pork scratchings I love them and that was his favourite thing he'd done because he'd grown up seeing these two people he'd, he'd, he'd walked past them for years with his dad and his uncles and all sorts his brother going to the match and it always seemed so inaccessible to him they were adults they were men who who were so part of this this day out that he used to have um, approaching them then for an interview was more of a daunting experience than approaching Roberto Carlos for an interview, which we couldn't have been happier with, to be honest. 
I, I, I think we, what we'd like to do, not necessarily what we will do, but we, we believe it or not, we do have interest outside of football. And we we kind of like to take the, the, the lens that we place over football every every four months or whatever it is and, and apply that to, to other things, to other sports, maybe first of all, then, you know, to, to, fa- to men's fashion, to men's lifestyle magazines, to, to kind of answer the question or, or, or fill, fill the gap that's been left in all those worlds as well, because it's not just sports writing that's kind of been watered down over the past couple of decades. It's, um, there's, there's a lot of other, other things that we care about that we'd like to address. Football and Pork Scratchings, like if we could do a Pork Scratchings magazine, that'd be that'd be great. Hopefully, hopefully, Mundial in five years is uh, exclusively Pork Scratching related. <laughs>